we are starting a new series, like Derek mentioned, called Church Closed. And I think it's uh, funny because it's, for some people, maybe it sounds original. It's not original at all. It has uh, everything to do with the 1990, maybe it's 90s, early 2000s, uh, rap song, Christian rap song. I cannot rap that for you. I apologize. I should have come more prepared. Obviously, my priorities were out of whack. Uh, <laughs> but maybe another time. But uh, the idea of church clothes, and we're going to be walking through the book of Galatians. And so I'm really excited because Galatians is fun. Uh, Paul is a little fiery in Galatians. He, he brings the heat early and often, and it's what we're going to discover together, what he's actually trying to say to the Galatian church and what it's saying to us here today. So at City Collective, we believe that Jesus, without the religious, religious baggage we've historically put around him, is wonderful. Uh, and you're going to find something undeniably life-changing and worth following. Everything we read about Jesus in the Bible paints a clear picture of a revolutionary and radical leader who intended on turning our ways of thinking upside down and inside out. He wasn't interested in creating a new religious system of do's and don'ts, of wrongs and rights, of rights and rules. Rather, Jesus' irreligious message is that we can only find true peace and wholeness when we embrace a love-based relationship with God, others, and even our enemies. So we believe that in order to truly see Jesus, to grasp his, grasp his message and to follow him, we need to reject the lens given to us by religion, even the Christian religion, and become a community that's more focused on him than anything. So it's funny, I, I uh, titled the series Church Close, and then Netflix brought out this documentary um, I have a feeling many of you have watched it, perhaps. Some of you started to implement it in your life. It's like uh, cleaning up with Marie Kondo, something like that. So that's, yeah, everyone's like, yeah, my house is so more minimal now. I don't know what that really means, but it looks good. And everyone has neutral colors in their closets now. It's just kind of the way it works. <laughs> but it's funny because I feel like as I've started to break down Galatians for, for myself and hopefully for, for you over the next four weeks, um, it's kind of like Paul's Marie Condoing the Galatian church. He, he's trying to, trying to make it a little bit more minimal. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Jesus, thank you for this morning, for everybody that's here, for the opportunity to engage with your word. I pray that our hearts are open and ready to receive this amazing message of hope found only in you. We're so grateful that we get to be a part of this story. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. I am going to jump right into our scripture, and I'm going to explain some things as we go. So uh, it's about 10 verses, and then we're going to keep on going. So we're going to start in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. So if you got your Bibles, you can follow along. Otherwise, you can follow the big screen in behind, because my man Hannes is going to be following along with me. You're going to have to bear with me, Hannes. Uh, we're going to stop and go along the way. Uh, so it says, Paul an apostle. So stop right there. So this is a normal letter written by Paul to the Galatian church, but this is just a normal way of writing in that time, that you will often present yourself immediately, like we'll say, dear somebody. You reference the other person. Paul is referencing himself. That's the normative way of writing. So he's saying Paul, 
And then he says, an apostle, an apostle means someone who is sent. So when you say an apostle, someone who is sent, who has sent you? And he responds by saying, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. It's important to note that it's churches. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and this uh, greeting might seem normal to you now, but how individuals greeted one another in that time, in that, in that space, was a little bit different because the word grace comes from the same root as the normal greeting in the Greek society, in a pagan society. It comes from the same root, and he uses the word grace very intentionally. And then he says, peace to you. And in the Hebrew manner of greeting one another, what do they say? They say, shalom. And shalom means peace. So already, Paul in his greeting has already done something very intentional. He's taken the pagan greeting and he's taken the Jewish greeting and he says, I'm greeting you both. This is not for one or for the other. This is for everyone. Let's continue. So he says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, says our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And it's fascinating that he, he has this like very stoic approach to the glory of God forever and ever. Amen. And you can picture the uh, congregation that's receiving this letter at the time that they hear it and they respond with a big amen. And it feels very stoic. And this is very normal in how Paul writes. This is a very Pauline type of greeting. That's how he writes. And then normally he follows a certain narrative, but the book of Galatians is a little bit different. And he says, to, the, to whom the glory be, or to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. And then he comes in hot and says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but, the, but there are some who trouble you and wanted to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. So we go from to the glory of God forever and ever. Amen. To you guys are doing it wrong. It's a quick flip of a switch. And I kind of love it. And then he continues. He says, for I am now seeking the approval of man or of God. Or for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Question mark. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Fascinating. It is so important when we are reading the Bible, and especially when we're reading uh, these epistles from Paul, that we are aware of, of a couple different things. First of all, that Paul is writing to a specific people, 
in a specific context at a specific time. Because this is not the style in which Paul always writes to different churches in the area, and it's not how all of his letters sound. When he writes to the Philippian church, he's really nice. He's, you can tell he kind of like knows them, and they know him, and so he, he takes it easy on them in, in some senses, and there's, there's a sense of familiar, familiarity with one another, and there's this relationship that's so clearly being developed in that moment. And then there's the Galatian church where it's not meant for one person. It says the churches of Galatia. So Galatia, if we're, if we're paying attention to the context, we need to transport ourselves from our current place in our current time to, to where they are. So Galatia is like modern-day Turkey, and particularly the, south, uh, the southern region, because that's where Paul was planting a lot of churches at that time. And there's a lot of debate maybe about which areas in particular, but that's the general uh, consensus is that it is in the southern regions of Turkey. Now, it was, that was something that they were aware of, and the way that it would work is Paul would write a letter, and then he would have, have an emissary that would take the letter, and he would be a runner to each of those churches. And he would show up at the church, and the emissary would read the letter from front to back to the church. And so that's why when I say you can picture that someone was reading it, and they would respond with an amen or something like that in that point, it's because it was probably actually how it happened. And so the runner would go, read the letter, then he would pause long enough for them to make a copy of it. There was no photocopier, so someone had to transcribe that letter directly when it was done. They took the letter and moved on to the next church. So Paul is writing with the mentality that this is going to go to the whole region. This is not a specific person. This is not a personal letter. This is a letter to a whole region. And this is important for us to know because if I was to communicate this message, for example, we've got two beautiful babies in this this church, they're not babies at this point, they are babies at this point, we got Beckett and we got Hendrix, if they were sitting in the front row and I was trying to communicate to them like this, and then I was trying to communicate to the school during the week, and then I came and preached this the same message on a Sunday morning, it would not make a ton of sense for me to communicate in the same way. Is that fair to say? First of all, I would be very distracted by how cute those kids would be, and they have great, like, Pentecostal timing. What that means is, like, those kids, like, shout in the right moments. I don't know how, but they do it. <laughs> Some of you guys, that's okay. And then it, it, would, it would impact the way I communicate. And so the same thing goes for Paul. Paul is aware of whom he is writing to. He's aware of the region. He's aware of the culture. He's aware of what they have been told up to this point and where they are on their journey of faith. And that impacts the manner in which he communicates to them. Now, uh, I think in the church today, the idea of church clothes, let let me uh, lay it out. We have different things in our lives that we are familiar with, that we are comfortable with, that we do, and we do without question. So do you have those things? Those things that you do on an everyday basis that you don't even question is, is right or normal, but you just do it anyways? How you peel a banana, how you use those little uh, circle cone things to put ketchup in, 
Yeah, I know. It's like, it's, it like blew my mind. I was like, I can open it up. My whole paradigm shifted. But, the, but we do things a certain way sometimes without really understanding the why behind them. We just have tendencies, and we have patterns, and we have habits, and we kind of accept that as normative and often as the rule for our lives. And this is something that happens in our church environments as well. That we have different things that we do sometimes that we don't question and we don't really have a why behind, but we just do them because we've always done them. Uh, so back to the Pentecostal concept. <laughs> I, I grew up in like a very Pentecostal background. I got nothing bad to say about it, but there was some odd things that I had to experience growing up um, that were formative, that were wonderful, and that were very, very confusing also at the same time. And uh, there was one moment in particular. So my parents were elders in the church that we were part of growing up. And when your parents are elders in the church, especially in that kind of environment, they would have like these all night like prayer sessions and like conferences and like the kids were always brought along for the ride so I got some great naps along the way and the way that would work is that they would have these like day conferences and these night conferences and then the night ones they would make it a little more open-ended and they'd have the the prophet come up and he would have an opportunity to speak over but it always seemed to be the case that in every single time that we were a part of those environments that myself and Jessica just happened to get a prophecy every single time. I was like, okay, well, I guess God's really trying to say something to me. But it was also, it felt a little forced in moments. But, but there's also the part of it where I knew how I was supposed to respond. I knew how I was supposed to walk up. How I was supposed to receive it. The things I was supposed to say to people afterwards. There was, uh, there was a healing ministry that came by the church. And uh, let me preface all this. I, I believe in the spiritual gifts. I believe those are the wonderful and powerful things that God has given to us here. And they are active and they are moving. But there are moments in our church culture where they, we manipulate them and we use them to not point at Jesus, but to point at ourselves. So there, are mo there was this moment where... Uh, there was a healing ministry, and I had, like, something going on with my stomach. Everybody has something going on with their stomach, right? Um, everyone's, like, gluten, dairy, something. And I didn't know what it was. This was, like, the early 2000s. That wasn't a thing yet. And so <laughs> I'm at the front, and uh, my parents wanted me to go up and get prayed for. I'm like, okay, I can do that. I can do that. And I get to the front, and this guy is, like, holy fire, Benny Hinn. He's going all on it. And so he's, like, he's full on, like, giving the little shove to people along the way, and I'm like waiting down the line, and I'm like, oh man, like what did I get myself into? And so I'm pretty aware of what's about to happen in this moment, and I'm like, oh, my stomach's actually not that bad. I should probably just head back. <laughs> and so I'm waiting in line, and I get to like that spot in the line, and he gets to me, and, and, he, and he like looks me in the eye, and, and he starts speaking things over me, and he was, he was kind, it was good, and then uh, and then he starts speaking, speaking in tongues, and, and, and tongues, uh, I believe in them, but it was just like one of those things where he just was like just saying things for the sake of saying things and to build up experience and emotion in the moment. And, and he's like, uh, just like, should have bought a Honda, and then he like comes really close, and I'm like, you should have bought a breath mint, because his breath was so <laughs> bad in that moment. 
Like that is literally the only thing I remember from that moment was how bad his breath was. But I was stubborn. So I was like, I don't feel anything. I'm not going down. And like gives me a little shove. I rock back. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Ain't happening. <laughs> Ain't happening. And he comes in. He's, of course, like, what's the response? Oh, there's something deep right here. There's something deep right here. And he comes in a little closer and he gives me a little shove again. And no rock, nope, nothing. I'm not giving it. But every time he's right up in my grill. He's like in my face. There's a little bit of like worse breath every single time. Like it's escalating. It's compounding. Like the particles are getting on. Yeah. And, and, and he gets closer and he gets closer. And then finally I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to go down. It's better than his breath. And so I remember he gave a little shove. I was like, sure. <laughs> and I go down. And I, I kind of like peek side to side. And I was like, other people look like they're like supposed to stay down. Okay. <laughs> and I took a nap. And I woke up. And uh, there was like a sheet over top of me. And someone was praying. This like really wonderful lady. And I, and I, and I got up and I was like, thanks. <laughs> it was just like. Pretend it didn't happen, and then everyone wants to talk about it afterwards. And like, wow, what was the experience? And like, did you sense something? And did you feel something? And, and how does that impact your faith? And like, wow, well, God must have done something incredible in that moment. And, and I knew what to say. So I said those things, if I'm being completely honest. I said the right thing in the right moment to appease the idea of what church should have been. But everything in that moment was not pointing me to Jesus, unfortunately. It was actually pointing it directly at, at, at me. I was the, the hero of that story. I was the person who was most important in, in, in that situation. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that healing is possible. I believe that the spiritual gifts are possible. But sometimes... When we, they, we use them and we don't use them to point to Jesus, we're not using them as God intended. And so Paul in this story, or not in this non-story, in this letter, he's got a beef with the Galatian church because they have decided that the idea of a simple gospel, of simple grace, of a simple relationship with Jesus was not enough. And isn't it fascinating that, that Paul isn't focused on any moral indiscretion in this moment? He isn't responding to some kind of sin that has perpetrated the community that's running rampant, that there isn't any talk of anything of that sort. The thing that gets him fired up, upset, and angry is the fact that someone was trying to overcomplicate his simple Jesus. And that is something that we do today a lot. That is church clothes. The things that we do and the things that we very literally wear sometimes. I read this great article in GQ that they were visiting a church and uh, they hung out with the church and they loved the people. But one of the things they noticed is that when they went into the church, everybody seemed to have like the same like dress code. Everyone had like ripped jeans and like a, uh, like a brimmed hat. 
And it, and it seemed like that was a part of the faith and somehow made it part of it. And there was wonderful elements of that church community, but it's funny that the things that people remember, the things that, that are, uh, are markers of our faith, wide-brimmed hats and skinny jeans. It's funny the things that we make a part of our faith to represent it or to live it out. And I think that if Paul was a part of many of our church conversations, our faith conversations today, I think he'd have a lot of issue with us overcomplicating his simple Jesus. So he starts out, and he gets into it, and, and, and he's got this issue with this overcomplication. And there's people who have come into this community in the Galatian church, and, and they've, they've started to communicate that Paul had come with the, the simple message, but he didn't have the whole message. He was actually missing a, some key parts of it, and so they were here to provide the extra bits, the additives per se. And an additive in, in a definition is a small addition to something to preserve it or to improve it. And that's kind of what they were doing to what they perceived as too simple of a truth. Because Paul simply came to a Gentile population and to a Jewish population in that area. And he was saying that for you to get to know Jesus, for you to be accepted into the family of Jesus, and to be accepted into the kingdom of God, all you need to do is trust in him. And then these other guys, they show up and they're like, that's cool, that's cool, yeah, yeah, that's really good. But you got to do some other things as well because this is born out of our Judaic tradition and, and, and you know us and we know you. So if you want to be a part of what we're kind of moving forward in, we've got to share some common elements. So you need to go get circumcised. It's a tough thing to tell someone when they're getting converted. <laughs> got the scissors at the back. And so Paul's got a problem with this. He is not happy with the fact that they were trying to overcomplicate it. And he goes as far as saying that even if an angel comes and tells you, if I come and tell you something different, none of that matters. And he uses the word, and they will be accursed. And now the word accursed feels like you're like smiting someone, like God's going to send down a lightning bolt from heaven, that you're going to end up with like leprosy on the spot. It's going to be this horrible, horrible moment. But that, that even like runs in conflict with the idea of a gracious and loving God. The idea of accursed in that scenario, it's said in Deuteronomy 7.24, and it means more the idea of removing someone from the community. That if they are doing those things, if they are saying these negative elements, if they are leading people astray from the truth of the gospel, Paul is saying for them to be removed for the health of the whole community. But isn't it interesting? I, I, that, that progression of like, glory to God, amen, then boom, and normally he would have something along the lines of, like, I'm thankful for. That's normally, like, his first sentence after that, that uh, opening Pauline greeting. But instead he has this thaumatso in the Greek, and it says, I am astonished. Can you, can you imagine you writing, I am astonished in a letter? What kind of emotionality would be behind that? 
kind of passion would be around that kind of phrasing. And so Paul's got a bone to pick. In, in chapter 1, he, he makes this statement. In chapter 2, he calls out Peter as a hypocrite. In chapter 3, he calls them stupid Galatians. Not nice language. He shouldn't, used to, he shouldn't say that, but Paul had a moment. Uh, in chapter 4, he says that his time had been wasted and that he'd been working in vain to even bother continuing with them. And in chapter 5, he says that he hopes that those who would be circumcised would accidentally have the knife slip and castrate themselves. So this is a pretty loaded letter. It's got some heat behind it. And now regardless of what you think of Paul's response and whether his anger is justified and whether his anger is right, what is fascinating about this letter is that the person of Paul really comes through. And this is important. And it's that God wants to use you, but he doesn't want to lose you in doing it. Sometimes I think one of the most difficult parts of coming to Jesus is the spoken and unspoken laws of the church in our modern age. The manner in which you act, in which you live, the way that you dress, talk, operate on a day-to-day basis. And you have to almost do those things to be a recipient of grace or to be welcomed into a church community. And I think that we give this impression sometimes that coming to Jesus means losing who you are. But that isn't true. Coming to Jesus doesn't mean losing yourself. It means losing your selfishness. It means losing you as the center of your world. It means discarding the periphery elements that you think are tied to your identity, our clothes, our status, our ability to make kombucha because we moved to the lower mainland. Dan Dupree's, where were you at? (laughs) Finding Jesus does not turn you into a nondescript automaton or a watered-down version of someone else. Finding Jesus makes you truly you. So pre-Jesus Paul is very passionate. In the second half of chapter 1, he makes a statement that he is extremely zealous. He is a passionate individual. But post-Jesus Paul, is talking about people castrating themselves in chapter 5. He's just as zealous, it seems. He hasn't lost his passion. So when God comes into your story, he's not trying to make you less of what you are. He wants to take the best parts of you, the thing that makes you, you, and he wants to point it in the direction that is going to be so purposeful beyond your understanding. Suddenly the passion that was being used to break down the church was now being used to lift up the church. You don't stop being you when you find Jesus. So pre-Jesus Paul is passionate and post-Jesus Paul is passionate. But we can also agree that perhaps he has some growing to do. So he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The Galatian Christians are deserting someone in order to to embrace something else. He says that you are deserting not that view of life and embracing this view of life. He says that you're deserting him for that. 
for the, for the message of rules, of regulations and, and rituals. And he's saying that Jesus' followers should oppose anything that leads you away from the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. See, for Paul, the idea of grace is not simply something that is given to you and leaves you the way that you are. Grace is something that changes you. In fact, Paul seems to argue that if it doesn't change you, that it's not grace. And I think that part of the reason why Paul starts with this personal story is that we, uh, we genuinely have a hard time wrapping our head around the idea of grace. I have a couple different things here. There's, a, there's this great video on, well, I think it's like a scenario that's being run in a couple different like, game shows and things like that. But I saw it, of course, on the NHL network. Um, and so they had a scenario where they had a, something, a box like this set up, and they brought in these big, burly, like, hockey players. And they're like, you just got to stand behind the box, and then trust us. Got to reach in. Got to tell us what's in the box. And so these big dudes are frightened. They are so unsure. And often, it is something like a little purple dinosaur. And they'll approach it, and they'll look at it, and the other guy will be like, just trust me. Just, just, just trust me. And they're kind of like, I don't know. They look away, which is really odd because they can't see it anyways. <laughs> but, and then they reach, and they're like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And they touch it. And they kind of pull away. And they'll reach again. They'll touch it. And they'll pull away again. Like, I can't see it. I don't know what it is. What is it that I'm touching? I don't, I don't understand what is on the other side of this. And I think often our, our inhibition to grace is that we don't fully understand it and we can't comprehend it because there's nothing else like it. See, see, grace is not simply the idea that your sins are forgiven from the past. It's the, it's the idea that you are given grace right here, right now, in the present. And that is a radical concept. The idea that grace is given to you as you are making the mistake. So God gives grace as you watch pornography. God gives grace as you respond poorly with anger and with words to your husband or to your wife. God gives grace when you respond with a negative thought or word or in a way that you would not want to to your child or in your workplace. God gives grace when you have anger, when you feel rage, when you are apathetic. Grace is not limited to the things that were, but they are for the things that are. 
And, and the reason I say this is because I think that it's so much easier to accept that we receive grace for the pains in our life that have been dulled by the experience of time. Because we're like, I've forgiven myself, kind of. Like, I've gotten through it. I've moved on. I'm a different person. And we're like, I can receive that grace. But then those moments when we are currently in our struggle, we are so quick to set up that barrier at the possibility of a God that could even engage with us in that moment, that could even look at us in that moment. But grace is just as much for the days that were as the days that are and as they are to the days that come. And sometimes our greatest inhibitor says, Understanding and receiving grace, just putting our hand out there, trying to feel for what could it be. Because we don't know what it looks like. We don't, we don't have an example in our world of what unconditional grace, 100% of the time, already given to you, not waiting for you to get it right, looks like. We're so used to a reward-based society that I'm going to do X, Y, Z, and I'm going to get, then get my prize at the end of it. And then we know these things, and we know our theology around grace, that grace is freely given, and yet we receive it, and then we try and live the rest of our lives trying to still earn it. And we put on these church clothes in an attempt to retain the grace that was freely given then and is just as freely given now. And so perhaps we reach in and we feel it one time. So the Galatian church, they get it. Man, they found grace. And they're like, man, purple dinosaur. It's got some orange stripes on his back. This thing's cute. It's awesome. I love grace. Grace is great. And then the other... Uh, the other teachers, they arrive and they, they come with this news that you need to do something more. And they, they have this idea that you have to uh, do it the right way. You can't be that close to grace. It's too simple. So they come with these methods. Of, like, you got to reach for grace this way. And they're like, ha, you got grace. But you're like, I can't touch it. I can't feel it. It's not, it's not close to me. Why does my experience with God feel different now than it did when I first met him? And then we put grace back in the box, and we're kind of afraid of ever touching it again. And then when we want to get to it, we're like, okay, this is the way to get to it. This is what I've been told. This is what I've been taught. And what Paul is saying, put away the things that you think need to qualify you to receive the grace that is already given. And just trust. Just give him a chance and just trust him. Because the most beautiful part of it all might just be that it is simple. And in a chaotic, crazy, busy world, we don't get simple. We say we desire it. And I think that's why something like Marie Kondo is like so appealing. Like, ah, oh, I can make my life simple. 
because we desire it. We, we, we desire simplicity in our story because we know the good moments that it pr- produces and the spaces that it creates when simplicity is a part of it. But then we don't know what to do when it's around us. We don't know how to engage with it. And we, and we reject the most beautiful gift that is the simplest thing in the world because we just can't wrap our head around it. But what if we just trusted him? With everything, with all that we are feeling and experiencing and going through right now, we just gave it all to him and we understood that grace is for everything and anything that you're going through. I'm going to put away this purple dinosaur. Does that make sense? God's, God's invitation of grace is, is not dependent on anything that we do. And I know this is like a, a, a message that you've probably heard before, a statement that you've probably heard before. But this week, as, as, as I'm saying this over and over again to myself, I'm like, I don't know if I truly live this out. How often do I qualify my relationship with Jesus by saying that I have done something to make it better? That I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus because I read my Bible, because I prayed this morning, because I was nice to someone. And we say that we are a follower of Jesus because of those things. When in reality, our ability to follow Jesus is not predicated on our strength or on our will or on our intention. Our ability to follow Jesus is purely a gift given by his grace. What would happen if grace was, was this never-ending loop of a relationship, a one of giving and of receiving, to understand that God has freely given this gift and our response, our responsibility in these moments is to purely be receiving and to receive and to receive and to receive this unending gift, unconditional gift of love and grace that transforms us, that changes us, and the response of our lives is different. The way that we live changes. The way that our churches function change. And instead of living a fear-based mentality where we're not sure if our, if our grace is safe or if our, if our ways are safe or if we're doing everything the right way, we actually get to engage with the reality that is Jesus. There was a, there was a period of time in, I guess, the last 15 years. I don't know how old the book is. Harry Potter came out. And uh, <laughs> the church didn't have, like, the best response to it. Like, books were written about it. Conferences were held about it. M- moms did meetings about it. I don't know. <laughs> Felt like my mom did. Because, uh, like, the first book fair that came around our school my mom bought bought me the book because it was like the most popular one it's like yeah no problem and then like a couple months later mom's like no it's not allowed I'm like why 
It's not allowed. <laughs> and my mom has warmed up to it over time because the, the, the reality of it is that the church rejected it without really knowing it because we believe that it somehow threatens our idea of what was our faith, of what kept us safe. And it was about moral correctness and not about real, real relationship with Jesus. And we missed out on this incredible Jesus story that has this resurrection narrative all throughout it that leads us to this place where love is the thing that overcomes evil. That's Harry Potter. That sounds like a Jesus story to me. But so often we have things in our lives and things sometimes in our communities that prevent us from experiencing the fullness of the, the beauty of Jesus in our, in our society, in our day-to-day existence, because we are so afraid of losing the elements that somehow have become necessary and formative and vital to our existence. The only thing that you need as a follower of Jesus is a trust in him. And it might seem too simple. It's because it is in comparison to everything else in life. But what would happen if we trusted in him? If we gave him that space in our lives? I think some, one of the m- most difficult parts of uh, accepting the simplicity of it is like the safety and security that an insecure soul finds in rules and rituals. Uh, there's safety in drawing lines around ourselves. See, when you, when you say being a Christian is all these observable things, like the way you dress, the way you say these words, uh, the, the place that you attend, you, you fit into it. And once you define it and you step back, it, it feels secure. And we all love to belong. And we find, unfortunately, a, like a, greatest, a greater self-esteem in pointing out who's in and who's out. And that is just the inherent fallen side of who we are. And I think this story, and we're just beginning on it, this, this letter from Paul is a constant reminder that even when you don't catch the idea of Jesus, even when you don't really embrace the idea of grace, and even when you sometimes put rules and regulation around it, he's still pursuing you with it. He's not waiting for you to do something for him to give that grace to you. The purple dinosaur is always there. question is, will you trust, reach in, and grab hold of it? Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful for your story that gives us hope that paints the way to uh, new possibilities and new beginnings. That is so outside of our understanding that even in the midst of our mistakes, you are present. That your grace is given to us.
would that our hearts trust in you above all things. That we would not feel the need to attach additives of rules and regulations and things that we somehow need to do to receive your grace or to be in relationship with you when the reality and the simplicity of the gospel is that the Son came for us. In the greatest act of love in human history, the Father sent his Son for us so that we could experience true freedom true hope and an unconditional love that's beyond explanation. So for every person here this morning, for those of us that are asking these questions of what is grace and who are you, Jesus, and I don't know where I stand in my faith, I pray, Jesus, that you would meet us right here, right now, and there would be so much peace upon our hearts. And if we have made a decision in the past and we, have, we feel like we've fallen away and we feel like we're too far gone, Jesus, I pray that there is just this amazing sense of comfort that you are never too far gone in the grace of Jesus. That he never stops loving you. He never gives up on you. And he's just here saying, I'm here. Just grab hold and let's do life together. Let's discover all that you are, all that I've created you to be. So I pray that those who do not know you this morning would come to know you. For those who have, feel like they have fallen far from you or have rejected you, I pray that grace is shown. And for those of us this morning that are just learning to understand what is your grace and how do we live that out and how do we receive that, I pray that this week is one of constant revelation, that there are moments over and over this week where we receive and we receive and we receive and we have an opportunity to reciprocate through our workplaces, through our families, through our quiet time with you to reflect this amazing grace that we've been so freely given. This simple gospel seems too good to be true. I can only come from you. In your mighty name, we pray. Amen.